Great. Um, the second reading tonight is from Genesis 11, verse 1 to 10, uh, titled The Tower of Babel. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastwards, they found a plain at Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down and, uh, to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they, uh, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they uh, will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them uh, from there or over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why they call, it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language over the whole earth. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we give you thanks we can come to your word with confidence that you'll speak to us. We give you thanks also that we have confidence that you receive us. But we know that if we stood here by our own merit, then we could expect no such reception because in every way we fail you. We ask forgive us our sins. We ask forgive us our sins that we do knowingly against you. Forgive us for the foolish things. Forgive us for the things we fail to do. Forgive us for our failure of love, for our lukewarmness, our, our lack of vision, for being so sorry for ourselves and so caught up in this world that we forget your kingdom and your work. And we pray that you would reveal those things to us now, that your kingdom will become clear to us and that we'll be uh, re-energized in our faith and refreshed in our love for you and for each other. And we pray that you would speak loudly through your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this night, tonight we have pictures. I just thought there was a, a topic needed pictures. Um, it's also, if, you, uh, um, if you've heard me preach before, you realize that my approach to preaching is very simple and straightforward. Um, I have the view that scripture generally speaks for itself. But it has to be said, if you're reading the epistles of, of Paul, uh, that's much more so than if you're reading some of the narrative passages. And I've got to say, this passage in Genesis chapter 11, whilst at one level it's quite straightforward, at another level it leaves us with all sorts of questions. It's not clear, particularly when it comes to the question of what does it mean for us. So uh, the, the question that seems to me that really uh, cries out to be asked here in this context is this question, is the city bad? Now, you might say, well, what consequence does that have for us? Well, we are urban people. We live in cities. Our world, our culture, our community is urban. And so this question of whether we retreat from this and say, well, it's all a problem, I don't want to engage, 
or whether we see it as a responsibility and opportunity to engage. It's very pertinent to the way we live our lives as Christians. Of course, uh, you would recognize that skyline there. Uh, today is the 9th of September. A couple of days will come to the 11th of September. It'll be the 11th anniversary of the 11th of September when those two towers were, were toppled down by religious fundamentalists who thought that they were a just target because they said that this city, New York, and, and this country, America, and Western civilization that represented was in some way deserving of punishment. Of course, they had a, a plan to uh, try and uh, provoke a response, which I guess in many ways worked. Um, but their argument based on a, a very narrow understanding of religion was that there was something bad about what was happening at the World Trade Center, and therefore it was an appropriate target well, is the city bad? I think as Christians, uh, we'd be very quick to distance ourselves from the likes of Al-Qaeda. Uh, but the reality is sometimes our, our own reasoning is not so very far away. Sometimes uh, our own reasoning can be uh, just as mistaken. This passage, as I said, is fairly straightforward. It, there's a lot of things that aren't told to us. Uh, but what is told to us is a particular a uh, group of people at a particular moment in time, we don't even know exactly the time, we're living in an area which we think we know where this is. This is uh, Mesopotamia, or in today's terms, Iraq, between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers on those very fertile plains. Um, and there was a large group of people speaking one language uh, who were in the process of rapidly developing. They built a city. They innovated with... Uh, with uh, bricks and, uh, and modern mortar made for tar. Uh, they wanted to create something that would hold them together. And when God looked at this, he said, well, if these people carry on this way, doing what they're doing, uh, there will be no stopping them. If, as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Now, those words are interesting because they ring true for our generation. We live, we like to think, in modernity, and we live in the age of Babylon, uh, of, of the city of Babel. We live in an age in which, uh, effectively, we do speak one language. I mean, we speak many languages, of course, as John reminded us, but we, we communicate on a global scale. We communicate uh, via satellite communications. We watch things in real time. We work together. Our modern cities, uh, our modern jet aircraft, every other aspect of our technology is the, is the product of teamwork. And it's true that there's nothing that we can't do in one sense. Um, why did God decide to disrupt this city? We don't know what he did. He, um, it used to be assumed he, did, he, he toppled down the tower they were building, but that's not said in the text. Um, perhaps he uh, intervened to organize some sort of uh, political upset that caused that, that, um, that city to fall apart and people to scatter. We don't know the reasons God did this, but clearly uh, he had his reasons, and this was not the time for this great city to emerge and this, this civilization uh, he had some purpose in scattering these people. What we can uh, conclude from this passage is that, uh, and this is a reminder of where we are today, that they were rapidly evolving, changing. Uh, the, the reference to technology, um, John's an engineer, so John will appreciate this, but I, I studied engineering for some years, and so it caught my eye. The fact that they used... Um, brick rather than stone, the fact that they were using tar meant that they could do things on a very large and, and sort of, we would say, industrial scale, and therefore there was great potential with the civilization. Um, we know that they were conscious of the fact that if they built this tower in the middle of the city, it would help bind the city together. Today we hear a lot of discussions from our mayors and premiers and prime ministers about such projects. 
um, refers to pride and identity. Pride and identity are not bad things. Everyone got very proud a few weeks ago with the Olympics, now with the Paralympics. Uh, these aren't in themselves negative things, um, but that was a feature of this project to build this tower. A very clear message that comes through is the power of communication and cooperation. And, and that's a very positive thing. If people communicate together and work as teams as they cooperate, then as God himself said, nothing will be impossible for them. Of course, the great lesson of this passage is that God is sovereign. Nothing happens in human affairs without God's hand being upon it, and he works out his purposes. Now, sometimes those purposes we can guess at, sometimes they're completely hidden to us. Uh, And we're not told in this passage in Genesis 11 why God wanted to interrupt this civilization at this point in time which is why I think the, 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 the question before us really is uh, because it's often assumed that this is some sort of morality tale and that there was something bad about the city of Babel and that there was something bad about this project of building this tower that we should, uh, we should draw that conclusion. But I, I don't see that, frankly. I think it really should drive us to asking uh, what the Bible has to say about this concept of city civilization because it's a, it's a very pertinent thing for our time. A uh, 17th century Jesuit scholar uh, drew this particular picture based probably on Rome's Colosseum. It's unlikely that this was the, uh, the sort of structure in mind. Uh, the people in Babylonia then, we know from many other sites, were building towers like this, a ziggurat. Uh, entirely possible with, with cooperation, a bit like the Egyptian pyramids, um, only not so smooth. Um, this is probably the, the, the sort of tower, the, the reference to it reaching to the heavens was a rhetorical hyperbolic reference, just as the reference to the whole world, which occurs several times, is hyperbolic. It's framed from the perspective of the people on the ground rather than being a, a, a statement. These first dozen chapters of Genesis uh, are not meant primarily as, as uh, scientific texts or historical texts. They're meant to tell us how things begin the beginning of things and God's purpose and the moral lessons there. That hasn't stopped people, of course, reading into this story all sorts of things. Uh, this composite image, uh, you may recognize the, the right half of it is the um, European Parliament building, which, of course, some people were quick to see as some modern-day Babel, uh, which uh, is generally seen as being sort of uh, um, sinister and, and, and worrying. Um, of course, it wasn't entirely manufactured. The, uh, the EU uh, early on had this poster uh, actually building on the Tower of Babel image to describe what they were doing with the EU. Of course, the Euro- Eurozone is, has its own problems today, but it was a, and is a very positive project to bring people together. And if you think about the wars of the mid-20th century, that's uh, not a bad thing at all. This building points for anyone who recognises it. You obviously don't spend enough time uh, watching um, mindless movies like I do. <laughs> Sorry? Not quite. Uh, this is MI6, that's right. So there's a man who either spends too much time watching spy movies or <laughs> is a serious student of, industri- of international relations. Uh, probably the latter, I think. <laughs> anyway, um, some people look at this and say, well, look at that, Tower of Babel, it's a, it's a Babylonian ziggurat. It must be a sign of something... Uh, People can be very silly, Christians included. I don't don't think we need to draw any such conclusions. I put it in there for fun. But seriously, though, cities can be most inspiring places. Of course, one of the most inspirational cities of all is New York City. Um, It's always very nice and and exciting to visit cities like that. What should we make of cities? What should we conclude? Are these places of evil that we should, as Christians, draw back from and retreat from? Or is there something else that we should take away? 
And uh, particularly as we come up to this date on Tuesday, the um, uh, 11th of September, and think of what happened, a very horrible thing that happened in the name of religious fundamentalism to that skyline, um, it really should get us thinking about what the correct understanding as believers is of cities. Um, we live in an age of urbanization. When this graph was done 2007, the world had just passed a tipping point. We'd gone to beyond 50% urbanization. Of course, if you look carefully there, you might notice that in the UK, it's already reached 90% urbanization. The US, 81%. Um, Australia, um, almost 90%, 89% in 2007. And of course, Asia and the developing world is rapidly urbanizing. So like it or not, we live in the age of cities. So it, be it behooves us as Christians to really stop and make sense of what this means for us. What about the Bible? What does the Bible say about cities? Well, the Bible has quite a lot to say about the city, and that's the reason I wanted to focus on this theme tonight. Um, at least in my uh, e-version of the NIV, um, if you search for city, I, you get 667 references. Uh, Babylon, over 300. Jerusalem, of course, often these things are together. 763. And a synonym for Jerusalem, of course, is Zion. Uh, 165 references. So much of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, centers around particularly the city of Jerusalem. And this image of the city looms large. It's an image which is both negative and positive. In Revelation, uh, we have this negative image framed as the city of Babylon. Of course, Babylon, Babel, Babylonia, modern-day Iraq, Mesopotamia, we're talking about uh, the same geographical location, but here Babylon is a, is a symbol for all that's bad, that's, uh, that's evil, that's wrong, that's um, selfish and, and, and prideful and cruel. On the other hand, we have this very positive image of the city of God, which is given to us most strikingly, I think, in, in Hebrews, Hebrews 11 and 12. We're told that Abraham left that area, Babylon, and he moved a very, very long way uh, because he had to go up the river and down to stay where there was fertile ground to graze his flock. Um, he left a, the world's center of civilization, the most impressive cities, to go into the countryside with his flock because God was calling him. Why? Because he was looking to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And, and so it is for us. We look to this new city, this new Mount Zion, this new Jerusalem. It's an enduring city. It's a city that, 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 that will last. And this is, a, is, of course, painting for us the, the most positive image of the city. It's the image which our uh, first reading expounds upon, Revelation 21. Uh, I'm not going to go through Revelation 21 verse by verse, but just a couple of things to remind us. This is, as John said last week, the flood uh, didn't mark a new beginning. It had the promise of a new beginning, but we're still left with human nature, our, our fallen sinful nature. Um, there will be a new beginning only when this cycle of history is ended and we go into a place beyond history, a, a new Jerusalem. It's interesting that this is talking about heaven, and if you look at what Hollywood says about heaven, um, it looks like the land of Teletubbies, only with more clouds and more angels, uh, you know, rolling green fields. What the Bible says about heaven, the Bible says heaven is a city. Heaven is a place packed full of people. But it doesn't have all the bad things that cities have because, fortunately, um, God has done a number on us as well. And the people, we are not as, as we are on this earth, that our, our selfishness, our, our competition, our, uh, our sin... Uh, is replaced by a transformed nature, which is what makes the city 
perfect. So we're told that this will be a city in which he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There's a lot of crying and pain in modern cities, a lot of homelessness, a lot of suffering, uh, a lot of crime, a lot of, of, of sin and a lot of sorrow. This city will have none of that. And we're told that uh, he will make a new beginning because he is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Um, well, what about us? My name is there, not my name, but a reference to me anyway, in verse 8, um, that uh, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, the liars, uh, they won't be in the city. Now, if you don't find yourself in that reference in verse 8, then either you're amazing or possibly struggling with um, the reference to honesty. But anyway, the truth is that we're all, we're all falling foul of this, uh, this curse. We all are more selfish uh, uh, are more hateful, are more prideful, are more unbelieving uh, than we ought to be. Uh, we may not actually murder, but as the Sermon on the Mount reminds us, to, to hate somebody in our heart is, is to murder. Uh, fortunately, we're also found in verse 27, um, nothing impure will ever enter the city, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And our names are in the Lamb's Book of Life not because of anything we've done, not because we're nice people or good people, but because of God's grace. Uh, God has called us into his kingdom. And of course, the Lamb's book of life refers to the word of God, to Jesus. Only here in Revelation, he's referred to as the Lamb uh, because he was the Lamb because he was a sacrifice. He was taken outside the city, the city walls of old Jerusalem, and slaughtered there. He was crucified there so that we can go into his new city, which is a truly wondrous thing. I won't go into the details of this holy city, but if you look at the specific details, John, thinking as an engineer, is always working out the dimensions, 12,000 stadia in length and width and height. Well, how big is that? That's 2,400 kilometers. Um, that's not meant as a literal blueprint. Um, if you read about, uh, read about uh, Solomon's temple, for example, that is meant as a literal blueprint. You can work that out. That's that's, that's speaking in a, in a straightforward fashion. This is not straightforward language. This is metaphorical language. Uh, and all of the other details, they're meant to convey a sense of wonder, and they do. Um, the, 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 the truly wondrous thing is that there is no light needed because God himself, the Lamb of God, are in the middle of the city. Um, but to try and think of it literally is a mistake. Of course, some Christians do. Somebody here has worked out how big the New Jerusalem would be if you work it out, you know, 2,400 uh, kilometers each side. He's made a little cube stuck on his globe. I don't think that's what God intends us to take away from this passage. And similarly, uh, you try and think of each of those 12 gates, 12 being the number of, of completeness, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel. But I don't think we're supposed to take from that that there is actually a giant pearl that functions as a doorway. It's language to inspire us because it's speaking of things which we're told in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. We, we can't understand this New Jerusalem whilst we're on this earth. Anyway, let me uh, wrap up this application points. I wanted to, I want to borrow here from Timothy Keller, who is pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, New York City, and I was drawn to him because he's somebody who's done a lot of work pioneering Christian thinking about the city and a ministry in the city. He's written a number of books. Um, here's one, Doing Balanced Gospel-Centered Ministry in Your City, Center Church. Uh, 
I'm borrowing some, uh, some things he said very wisely. He says them better than I can say them from a piece he wrote in 2002. Um, and he makes, I'll go through this quickly, but just to point out the, the pertinent points, he says that uh, a failing of Protestant reformed evangelical Christians is they tend to be rather negative on cities. They tend to stay away from the cities. He's talking about the US, of course, where in many ways... The nicest place to be can be in the Midwest in a small town. People are very friendly. That's great. But he said if we want to change the world, we better think about moving into the cities, putting our churches in the cities, and engaging. He said that uh, uh, there are three kinds of people here in the cities that affect the future, the elites, the new immigrants, and the poor. And if you want to reach them, go and live in the city. Have your church in the city. Uh, not that I think where Surrey Hill should uproot and move 10 kilometers you know, uh, to the northwest. Um, but it's a, it's a good reminder about engaging with our community. Uh, he points out that if we really engage with our community in our cities, and we are in our own way, in our leafy suburban way, um, still a city. We're now, as we're reminded, a city going past four and a half million, a very big city. Um, if you really engage in the city, you'll find people who you might think are hopeless spiritually, People of very different backgrounds and religions you can't relate to. But if you really engage, you'll find that there's much blessing from that ministry for, for us as much as for others. Um, in the city, you will find that the poor and the broken are often, often much, much more open to the idea of the gospel of grace and much more dedicated to its practical outworkings than you are, he's saying to, uh, to Christians. Um, and you will eventually come to see that you need the city more than the city needs you. Strong words. Um, he makes a couple of... Uh, of very pertinent points about how not to do ministry in the city. This is how Christians shouldn't respond to the city. He said, here's some ways of getting it wrong. We could despise the city, and we could see the church as a fortress. So, you know, erect big walls, as it were, guard our front door carefully, um, because outside of the city and the city is, is dangerous. But that's to forget the image of the city as Jerusalem. Um, we could think of the city as being like us. The church is a mirror. But then we forget the lesson of Babylon. The cities can, can be bad as well. Uh, we need to be a, a light on the hill, a city on the hill, um, reflecting the hope of the gospel. Uh, we can use the city, we certainly do, and church can be like a space capsule, and we can forget that actually we're supposed to be engaged in the city. Um, or we can love the city, and the church can be like, like leaven in, 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 uh, in dough for bread. We can work its way through that dough and cause it to rise, the image of, of Jeremiah 29. And he gives a couple of examples. Uh, Ezra spoke the word prophetically. Nehemiah engaged practically in the city, making it safe and functional. Esther, of course, in the providence of God, rose to a high position in a very pagan society. And in the providence of God, she was called upon uh, to do what was needed to serve God. Um, and that applies, I think, for many of us as well. And the example of, of Jeremiah, that we're to remember that the city is a place of community, that we're to remember it's a place of ministry, and we're to remember it's a place where we can do much. So, in conclusion, uh, if it's hard to draw from Genesis 11 exactly what God was doing there, because he hasn't told us plainly, um, but it, it should nevertheless make us think about this whole question of the city, and we think of these images of the New Jerusalem told to us in Hebrews and then in, in, particularly in Revelation 21. 
We think of also this image of where cities can, can uh, symbolize all that's wrong with society, Babylon. Um, what is God saying to us about the city? Bearing in mind, as I mentioned earlier, we live in the age of Babylon. We live in the age of communicating in one language, of working together, of doing things that were previously unimaginable. Uh, that's the secret to our technology, is, is cooperation, is, is teamwork. Um, that's why we can build skyscrapers. One person couldn't possibly do that, but a, a group of people working together, um, different professions, different individuals, can do anything, uh, as God said when he saw the people of, of, of Babel. Uh, well, the first takeaway is to remind her that whatever else is happening in this world, God is sovereign. We don't know the details of what happened in Babel, but we do know that God chose to intervene and to shape the way that history was going. He had his, he had his reasons. He, he tipped the direction of that civilization. He caused them to, to collapse and to disperse um, for some reasons that he hasn't explained to us. And this is true of everything that happens in this world. Uh, secondly, we are people of the city. We live in cities. We probably always will live in cities. Maybe you have a, a uh, tree change dream of going away and retiring to the countryside. It's a very nice thought. I suspect if I did it after about a fortnight, I would be going nuts because it would be too quiet out there. But, you know, maybe that's, that's, maybe that's the way God's calling you, and that's, that's well and good. I'm not, I'm not disparaging rural communities. But I think for most of us, God has called us to live in cities. That's the world we find ourselves in. And the city isn't necessarily a cesspit and a place of evil. Um, Cities have their ups and downs. New York City used to be very dangerous. It's now a much safer city. I was there in February. I visited a friend uh, uptown, took the subway. It felt very, very safe, much safer than many other cities. Um, It's not necessarily the case that a city as big as that is dangerous. Heaven is a city. A city can be good. Isn't it interesting that God should choose the image of, of the city for heaven? Because heaven is about us being with him and us being together. It's about a community. It's about a perfect community. It's like church, only without the bad bits, you know, with the rivalries and the misunderstandings and the hurt feelings. It's it's what we're supposed to be. So, in a sense, church is a kind of a city, and the New Jerusalem will be that made perfect. And the church universal will be there all at once, all together, all speaking one language. I hope, otherwise we'll be in trouble. No, we we, we will transcend ethnicity, race, gender, and language, and, and, and know a, a degree of, of union and a communication we don't currently understand. We're called to serve in the city. Our future, our eternity, will be spent forever in a city. We don't know exactly what it'll be like. It won't be one giant cube, I'm sure of that, but God can't explain it to us now because it's beyond our understanding. But it will be a city, um, and we'll recognise it as a city. But right now, we're not we're not called to go home and retreat away from the city and wait for the new Jerusalem. We're called to engage in this city that's around us and to really reach out to our neighbourhood and our community and, and to look for opportunity, to be thinking of God's kingdom. And we should be encouraged as we do that in knowing that God is sovereign, the same God who is sovereign over everything that happens in human history, the rise and fall of empires of great cities like Babel, is sovereign over even the, the apparent random encounter you have um, out walking the dog, the people you bump into, the people that God brings across your path. Uh, these things, too, are part of God's providence. And our purpose is found here. It is wonderful if God calls many of us to go on work in some mission field far away. That would be a good thing, and, and that's to be applauded. But for most of us, the mission field is this one here in Melbourne or Sydney or wherever else he takes us. And that's, that's where our, our service and our future lies.
Let's pray, shall we? Father, we give you thanks for this glorious hope of the new Jerusalem when we will be transformed and all that's sinful and selfish and rebellious about our characters will be changed and our community, our fellowship, our friendship will be perfect and we will be with you forever. Father, as we think of that glorious new city to come, help us to have a heart for this city around us. Help help us to have a, a heart for Melbourne and to think about those who are sleeping out doors, who don't have homes, who are struggling with problems of mental health and drug addiction or domestic violence, or are just lonely, uh, who want somebody to talk to. Father, bring across our path people who need your grace and use us as instruments of grace and help us to be ever reminded of our responsibility. Help us not to be selfish Christians. Open our eyes to see your harvest fields around us and your people and help us to feel for them the way that you feel for them, we pray in Jesus' name.